Who would say what I really want is a Beit Midrash where people are inauthentic, where people are not aligned, where people are duplicitous, where people aren't really telling you what they think. That, like what I was it's like is, children. It's like yeah. when teenagers arguing with yes. their parents. It's yes. like a lot of those arguments, they're not about what I really believe. Exactly. They're, they're more like probing. Imagine there's no authority at all. It's just like a free-for-all. Everyone, mm. everyone puts their positions and then they vote on it. And no one has to submit to anything. There's no moment where someone stands up like Rabban Gamliel mm. and says you all have to accept my authority. And then hmm. like it could, it's, a different, it's a different kind of, right. you know, it's not like you have to wait and pause before you open your mouth. Is this an authoritative statement? Right. Is this something like, right. there's no there's no faltering. There's no, no one's pulling rank on anybody else. Right, people's there, guards are down. One of the reasons why it's, it has to be limited to one day is because we're terrified of anarchy. That was my chavruta, my dear friend and study partner, Rabbi Joel Levy. And I'm Leon Wiener Dow, director of the Beit Midrash of Kolot and creator and host of Padrash. Welcome to season two. Season two is entitled Alma de Shikra, literally, the world of lies, or, as I've translated it, this lying world. It's a phrase that goes all the way back to the ancient text Leviticus Rabbah, composed in the land of Israel in the 5th century, which means that for about 1,600 years, we've been trying to figure out how to live in this world without giving in to its lies. This episode explores one of the lies closest to home, the one we tell implicitly by posting only those pictures of ourselves when we look our best, the one we tell by sharing stories select stories about what's going on at home or professionally, the one we tell with our smile when, inside, we're feeling like crap. What would the world look like if we were aligned and our insides and outsides matched perfectly, as Rabban Gamliel demanded of all those who would enter the house of study? Is that the world we'd like to live in? Or perhaps, when it comes to our own duplicity, we're content to dwell in a lying world. Welcome to our curated image. We have a lot of Torah to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is from the podcast Radio Lab, a show that explores the world through science and philosophy, hosted by Jad Abumrad. Their episode Smile My Ass tells the story of Alan Funt and the TV show Candid Camera. But beyond being an interesting story, it's a foundational one, because understanding candid camera provides a key component in understanding the blurred lines that we live out between those parts of our lives we're living privately and for ourselves, and those we're curating and exporting for external consumption. The tale, as told by Northwestern professor of communications Jacob Smith, begins with Funt as a soldier making radio shows for U.S. Armed Forces Radio. He invites soldiers into the recording studio to share their gripes, but he discovers that when the red recording light goes on, they freeze. So he comes up with a creative solution. So basically he'd bring them in and say, okay, let's just do a practice round. Let's just talk over the things, you, the kinds of things you will talk about just for practice. <laughs> uh-huh. And then when then finally they were ready to start, he'd be like, no, no, I already got it. He would get better material 
when they didn't know they were being recorded. This gives Funt the idea, which he sells to ABC Radio, for a show called Candid Microphone. His partner, Sonny Fox, explains. So what was, like, what was the goal for the show? The goal was to, you know, was to reflect people as they are in their unguarded moments. Uh, but by and large, uh, the tape they gathered... Funt was disappointed to discover that it was the most uninteresting garbage you could imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was frustrating. It doesn't have, you know, the nice shape, the rise and fall, the climax that um, is going to keep listeners hooked. So Funt comes up with an idea, what he calls the rile, something provocatively staged to elicit an interesting reaction on the part of the person being recorded. Needless to say, the show elicited much criticism, partly because of its intrusive nature, and partly because of the manipulation, the fusion of the real life with an unknowingly staged situation. Funt even went so far as to use hate mail sent his way to create the same controversial situation which it was critiquing. Listen carefully to this amazing scene. One lady took us at our word and wrote us a few well-chosen ones that really made our ears burn. She's writing into complaint that this was, you know, crossing a line. So what Funt does is he goes up to her door to talk to her, but he goes with a hidden mic. Uh, I'm with the American Broadcasting Company, and I wonder if I could have just a couple of minutes of your time. Is that all right? Yes. Uh, you wrote us a letter the other day about one of our programs called The Candid Microphone, and uh, I gather from your letter that you don't like it very much. No, I don't. Well, uh, why, what are some of the things you find objectionable about it? Well, I don't like it because I think it's snooping. Out-and-out snooping. Out-and-out snooping. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In your letter, you said... You said a little. You said it a little more strongly. You said you thought we were a bunch of dirty, sneaking spies. Well, um, I suppose at the time when I was listening to the program, I felt that way. You get these people in their homes extemporaneously. I heard that one program uh, about the what was it? Uh, you went into some man's bedroom. Oh, you mean the one where what? where the wife uh, awakened the husband? Awakened the husband, and there was a the poor fellow. He didn't know he was talking for, speaking for uh, the public. It sort of put him in a bad light, don't you think? Well, you may have something there, but don't you think it's funny the sounds a man makes when he awakens? Yes, they're funny, but they're only for him, though, in his own bedroom. And I'm sure he doesn't enjoy having the whole world know about it. Do you? Well... Would you? Don't you think most people are nervous and self-conscious in front of a microphone? Not anymore. I think most people take to a microphone very nicely. Do you feel you talk just about the same way if you know you you knew you were talking right to a microphone mean, right now? Yes, I would. There'd be no difference whatsoever. No difference. Well, now look. Let me show you. This is a microphone, mm-hmm. and what you've just said is is ready to go out from coast to coast. Does that make any difference to you? What am I supposed to do at this point? <laughs> Thank you. <Get> away. <laughs> you, do you mind our coming in here and talking to you this way? Do you think we took an unfair advantage of you? I think so, at the moment. This conversation may not be worth a nickel, but would you like to have it on the air? Yes. You would? Of course I would. Because I want the whole world to know of my opinion on this program. Oh my God, that's amazing. She just switched. Exactly. There is so much at stake in her about face. After taking the trouble to write and send a letter, and then defend her position passionately in person, when offered the fruit of temptation, 
And it matters not if it's the publicity, the fame, or the chance to make her case and influence people. She folds. Totally. Candid Mike not only withstood criticism, it morphed into the TV show Candid Camera. The show, however, was plateauing until Alan Funt made innovation number two, what he called the reveal. Right as the guy is about to blow, Funt either walks out himself or he sends someone out, and they, they kind of grab the guy and they're like, See the camera in there? <laughs> they show him the hidden camera on camera. And as he's looking at that hidden camera, and he's like, huh? The camera zooms in on his face. And, and Jacob Smith says that sometimes Funt would, would even actually have to hold people in place for that very moment. Because one of their first reactions are to turn away or to cover their face. So he would sometimes have to physically restrain them and turning them towards the camera so that they can capture that one fleeting moment. And in that moment, you see so much on their face. They're, they're angry, they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, they're confused. They, they don't know how to feel. And, and then right at that moment, Funt says the magic words. Smile, Smile. you're You're on on candid camera. camera. The reveal. It's the folding back of consciousness upon itself. The person is filmed unknowingly, which itself may be fascinating and amusing. But the necessary climax is the point at which she herself realizes that she's being recorded. And that moment of realization itself becomes a feast for our eyes as the subject stares directly at us through the camera. So much consciousness and self-consciousness interlaced and from every possible direction, all in five words. Smile, you're on candid camera. A quick word before the context conversation with Rabbi Angela Warnick Bookdahl. We recorded our conversation back in late spring, just after things had begun opening up for the first time since the pandemic hit, which is important to know as background to the story she tells about conducting a wedding. Enjoy. It is a pleasure, my pleasure, to welcome Rabbi Angela Warnick Bookdahl, who serves as the Senior Rabbi of Central Synagogue in New York City. Uh, she was the first woman or is the first woman to lead this large reform congregation. It's 180 year history. She was invested as a canon ordained as a rabbi by the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, where she was a Wexner graduate fellow. And she earned her BA in religious studies from Yale University in 1994. Born in Korea to a Jewish American father and a Korean Buddhist mother, Rabbi Bukdal was the first Asian American to be ordained as a cantor or rabbi in North America. Rabbi Bookdahl and her husband, Jacob, have three children and live in New York City. It is a pleasure to welcome Angela to Padrash. Thanks for being here. I'm so happy to join you, Leon. Thank you. So let's start by asking your initial reactions to Radio Lab's episode, Smile My Ass. Oh, gosh. First thought was a little bit of recognition, I guess, Um, because that feeling that sometimes you don't realize that you're being watched in some way or that you're known in some way that you don't know is something that uh, has happened to me before, not in the most positive way. Of course, I try to walk through the world behaving like a good human being always, but uh, I wanted to tell you a story, which is I was doing my first in-person wedding this fall 
just it was outdoors for 20 people and it was out in Long Island and I was staying in a hotel I was of course rushing to get to the uh, hotel site I mean to the uh, wedding which was going to be in someone's backyard outdoors and as I'm trying to leave the hotel I see that there are two enormous trucks set up blocking the parking lot so that I can't get out but more than that I started my whole line of judgment that what are these big trucks here doing setting up for what obviously looks like a very large party and I was thinking to myself why are they throwing a huge party here it's still the pandemic so I was in a really bad place and I was very frustrated that of course I needed to get to a wedding and they were blocking my way so the first person I see that has a clipboard that looks like he's official I roll down my window and they say how am I supposed to get out of here what are you doing and he looks at me and he goes are you the rabbi from Central Synagogue? I watched you for the holidays. <laughs> it was just a reminder to me of what it might be like if we always walked through the world knowing that perhaps the camera could be catching us at any moment. Um, maybe we'd behave a little better. Because you're such a... Um public persona who, you know, you, you, who appears on so many public media and on and on live stream. So when you were listening to this episode of Radiolab and kind of hearing the evolution of candid microphone to candid camera uh, and the way in which being in front of a microphone makes people freeze and act differently. And so in a certain way, what Alan Funt was after was, let's try to um, sift through that and allow people to be them, their natural selves, right? And in, in the thought that their natural selves is who we really want to present to the outside world. So share a little bit about having listened to the episode and thinking about when you're your natural self and when you're your um, camera or microphone self, what was going through your mind as a listener? I mean, I think that part of what I wanted to acknowledge is that we we are complex human beings that usually have multiple natural selves um i i think that my um the impatient self that uh was caught <laughs> by uh that man who i didn't know is a part of who i am it's obviously not what i want to present to the world but taken out of context uh with the that it was I was in a rush. I was also feeling a sense of judgment over what I thought the big trucks were there for, which I thought was not the right reason. So there was a certain righteous anger that I was also feeling in that moment. And I think that, um, you know, part of what we what we have to be careful of is how much we curate that public self and whether or not we allow ourselves to be real people. That's a real issue, especially for rabbis and cantors, like that we want to present such a perfect picture of ourselves that we often can't um, be the many natural selves we are, which are, you know, human beings that um, can feel a, a lot of different things, sometimes including a little impatience or frustration. Um, but I do I do think to myself that if uh, if we all walked around the world imagining that there might be a little camera catching what we're doing we, would we behave all better or would it uh, you know be a kind of a, a police state and 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 that it's actually natural for us to have multiple selves that can express themselves in different contexts um, and with different people that we we have to be able to let down our guard in certain places I, I want to come back to that issue that kind of very powerful image that you suggest about whether if we walked around this world, um, with a consciousness that we were being watched, right? I, I actually uh, um, think often about words that my Chavruta Rabbi Joel Levy once wrote, and he said that in, 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 in preparing for the high holidays, if we don't have 
a constant sense of being observed and judged, then it's a failure of our religious imagination that somehow our job as as spiritual seekers is to constantly imagine or sense that we're being observed and judged. So I, I want to come back to that, but I want to but I want to um, first uh, latch on to something that you said about our multiple selves and ask, we do all obviously have our flaws and our weaknesses and and whether we're rabbis or whether we're curating our image on Facebook and showing only the good things, what is it? is is there a way in which, only showing or not showing our our failures, not showing uh, our foibles, not showing our ugly selves, kind of makes pr- produces an inimical effect. Um, whether it's making someone feel bad about their own life or bad about who they are as a person, right? In other words, if what they see is Rabbi Bukdal, who is just the kind, she's she's on her way to a wedding and she's late and she is being blocked. But you know what? She speaks so gently to the person blocking her, you know? And I just, I wish I could be like that because I know that there is no chance in hell that I'm going to be able to muster that kind of calm and insensitivity, right? Like, is there a way in which we do other human beings a service by showing that part of ourselves? Well, I, I definitely think that it's a, a disservice to others um, when they they only get to see people at their very best, or maybe even more than their best, with special soft filters and sparkle filters on, which is essentially what kind of happens. There's almost, it's even beyond the real um, into some kind of almost um, angelic sort of state and uh, it's sunny all the time and the meal's always perfectly set. and. I think that it does a disservice because I do think that people judge their own lives against a standard which is impossible. But I also think there is a danger uh, that can happen to even the self when you present yourself in that way and you actually start to believe that sort of sainted sort of uh, image of yourself and the power play that happens in people's own minds of first of all, holding yourself to a standard that's probably not true nor realistic, but also uh, the kind of corrupting influence that that can have when someone sees you as sort of beyond um, any of the human kind of foibles that anyone has. And I mean, I'm right now looking into a case of a, of a rabbi who really did some harm. Um, it's a historic kind of case. And so I know that the reason he was able to get away with it is the the image that everyone saw publicly was charismatic, perfect, amazing rabbi. And um, and I think that that was part of the danger and part of why people could not believe that there could be anything mm. untoward or right. And and he and I think he both started to believe it himself. I'm too good for this. I'm too powerful for this. So there's a lot of danger in it, both for the self as well as for others. So in that sense, that part of Candid Camera, I'm just getting back, uh, thinking back again to this kind of breakthrough that Alan Funt uh, brought in Candid Camera, where we see, you know, someone um, having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning or um, being impatient with, you know, their spouse or whatever it is, you know, that's caught on candid camera or losing patience with a waiter who's bringing their food. So, you know, like in that sense, maybe he's, maybe there's a service there. You know, it's, it's, it's the reason that we're laughing is because we're recognizing that we in the exact same situation would probably be doing the same thing. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, 
I think in the same way that it's a disservice to only present the good, there can be real service in being honest about some of the hardships and the vulnerabilities. One of the things I had an opportunity to do over the last four months, I was on a sabbatical and I started writing a book proposal, which is you know, mostly in the format of a memoir. And it, it caused me to dig deep into some of my own story. And my editor um, kept pushing me because she said, Angela, you know, it looks like it was so easy that you got to be a woman and a mother who's leading a large congregation and it's a, an unusual circumstance and you were also Asian. And and um, and the fact is there were there were real moments along the way where I thought, I was going to give up. Like there were times where I wasn't sure I wanted to be a Jew anymore because it was so hard. There were times where at, with young children, I thought I can, I've like gotten out of the game so much. No one's ever going to hire me again. I'm never going to work full time. Right. Um, and I think if I had had women in front of me who actually told those stories and said, this is how I pushed through. And actually I had moments where I was deep in despair um, and you can get through it. That would have been incredibly helpful to me. And I realized the power of actually showing some of those vulnerabilities and the struggles and the challenges along the way. Um, and it gives people a sense of hopefulness, especially when we inevitably work that through in some way, try to come out the other side. Is there a way that you can imagine, right? Like I'm thinking most immediately of Facebook, but of course there's, you know, multiple ways in media through which we kind of curate our image. Is there a way that we can, uh, that you can imagine that we can utilize um, the media that, that, that are at our disposal to give a more honest picture of ourselves, which is not, which is not um, you know, with a soft lighting filter. You know, I, th I don't know that it works on huge um, public pages, for example, but I have seen um, Facebook groupings. There's, for example, a group of women rabbis um, that I'm a part of. And actually, during this pandemic, there has been a lot of sharing of vulnerabilities on that page. And it's been really beautiful to watch the way others just kind of say, I hear you, I've been there. And it's immensely validating um, for the people who are kind of posting their struggles of balancing children at home while they're working, the ways that people are judging them differently as working moms than their husbands um, in these moments. Uh, so I think that especially if you've got an affinity group that um, perhaps can be safe in a way, that I've actually found that people sharing those things um, is a massive support for each other. And, and that's been beautiful to watch too. When you were listening to the podcast and thinking about it, processing it Jewishly, um, share with us the, the line of thinking, share with us the text that came to mind or the concepts that were kind of guiding you as you uh, worked through and processed uh, the issues that it brought up for you. Well, I mean, I really pride myself in being authentic. And I think every single person wants to feel like they're, you know, consistent with their values and the way they present out into the world. And there's a Jewish expression, which is toho kvaro, for our insides to match our outsides, that what's inside to, to be what we present. Um, and yet there's a really interesting teaching in the Talmud. It's in Brachot 28a. And it basically says that Rabban Gamliel says, unless your insides match your outsides. You cannot come into my house of, of learning. And he sets this incredibly high standard, which all of us aspire to have. 
like, but nobody is able to come in. Like no one has, no one meets the standard. And so he has no students. Then Rabbi um, Elazar Ben Azariah says, actually, everyone should come in. Basically all of us with all of our foibles. And, and it says that that he had to set up 400 chairs. Some people say he had to set up 700 chairs, but the point is they all came in. And when they did, they were able to make these decisions with kind of this larger um, perspective of all these diverse voices, um, all in their like human foibles and failings, but also with a sense of like the striving that everyone's to have. And that ends up being the way that pro human progress is made. I also think that there has to be some room for the moments that we can break down and not be perfect, uh, be upset, be despairing, have our moments of despair, our moments of uh, frustration or impatience. Um, and and that, that, um, that that doesn't mean if we have those moments, that we are excluded from the human enterprise of learning, uh, learning Torah, learning, being a part of the decision-making of the world. When you brought that text, when you suggested that we think through that text, I, I, I mean, it was a kind of um, aha moment because uh, obviously I, I, you know, I asked you to, to share with me whatever text came to mind and, and already thinking in my own mind what texts come to mind. And then as soon as you said this text, I thought, oh, my God, that's amazing. Because on the one hand, the, the issue that you're, that you're pointing out, that, that someone's inside should be exactly what their outside is like. And, 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 and that's something we aspire to, right? And, and so in that sense, when we present this false image of ourselves on public media, uh, or however it is that we're presenting this false image of ourselves, um, there's a way in which... Uh, we know inside that something is awry. Um, I, I really believe that. And I think that we know that we're doing a disservice to other people and we're doing, in a certain sense, a disservice to ourselves. And I, and I, and I think that we feel kind of um, at some level when we pause, if we pause, uh, off balance um, for having done that. But, but, I, but, but the reason that I was especially glad you brought it is that there's something amazing. I mean, Rabban Gamaliel is not just a rabbi. He's 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 the president of the uh, of the San Andreas. So so he is the highest ranking official. Right. Um, and and what happens on that day, um, he has he had a shomer. He had a, a guard who was a doorkeeper. Right. A bouncer, essentially, at the Beit Midrash. And so, and so, what really occurs to me is um, is very interesting. Is that Rabban Gamliel presents an image where, on the one hand, he's saying um, your inside has to be on your outside, but like your outside. But on the other hand, he's doing something very, very problematic, which is to suggest and to assume that he can put a gatekeeper there who is going to know. That is. <laughs> Right. In other words, like, okay, so if if a bouncer is at a bar and deciding to let only the um, attractive men or women in, or you know those who are a certain height, okay, I get it. Right. In other words, I at least understand how the bouncer is doing his or her work. But if a bouncer is supposed to let on let in only the people to the Beit Midrash, to the house of study, whose inside is exactly as they are presenting themselves, then I mean, you know, I'm just kind of imagining you know, like if we had to if we had to say, okay, who exactly is living their life exactly like they're presenting themselves on Facebook? I, how would we know that? How would we know? Right. That's an impossibility. You're right. What a right. And so and so there's something I think that the Talmud is saying to us here, which is that we from the outside uh, have to foster and carry ourselves with a sense of humility 
almost with a, with an awareness that we really can't see from the outside what's going on. So true. And I mean, I imagine, let's say that the bouncer um, isn't even the person who's in the place of judgment. Mm. Maybe the bouncer just asks the person, have you completely lived your life exclusively where your insides match your outside? Even if you just ask the question, and we had to do the self-judgment, my guess is that's, that house of study would still be empty because we all know that we have those moments. And so I think that um, just the premise of it, even as it's an aspiration, but the premise that that is um, exclusive that that excludes us completely from the enterprise is um is i think what's most problematic about uh this text even as i think we aspire to that and you know i reflecting back on what you said around the holidays and uh you know our the the that if we do not feel that we are being judged or watched for everything we do that we're not taking the holiday seriously i, I think about the fact of you know imagining a god who like inscribes and writes every one of our actions in our book of life mm -hmm. right um, I contend that that wouldn't be bad for us actually theologically to imagine, even if it's a little bit creepy, that God is literally watching everything we do and writing it down in the book. But that has to be balanced with the fact that God is a God of mercy. Mm. You know, before we get to right. our all hates, we're reminding ourselves, Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum V'chanun, like you are a merciful, you know, compassionate God. You understand that. So I think that even if we're saying, I'm watching everything you do and I know everything, mm -hmm. but I'm actually going to judge you with a measure of just great compassion and mercy because I understand. And I think that is um, what I wish we as human beings would do for each other a little bit more of, like that we all can, um, yes, okay, so I observed that. I might I might say I, I've seen that you weren't actually acting the way I know you could act, but I'm also going to... Um, read that with like a benefit of the doubt, with a sense of compassion, with a sense of understanding maybe the context of that moment. Um, there's such a desire right now to sit in judgment of each other. And um, as you know, I'm sure that um, you've heard kind of just the kind of level of cancel culture that's happening. I don't know if it's like this in Israel, but certainly in America, where for some often real grievance, um, like a human being is literally discarded forever. Uh, I don't think that that's what God ever intended. If I could kind of come back to the opening story that you shared with us and, and kind of frame it again um, one final time in, in the context of the image that we present to the world, is it possible, right, that you did that guy with the clipboard uh, a real service? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I'm being serious. Like you, you might not have felt great about yourself, but right. Like in the same way that you said, um, I'm, I worship an image of God who is merciful, um, who is compassionate and who understands that sometimes, uh, 24 seven, I cannot be my best self. Right. Mm -hmm. And there will be, you know, each of us will, will fall. Obviously we hope that we fall, uh, not too hard and in a way that doesn't damage too many people, but, um, and so, and so in that sense, you know, that's what it is to model to, okay, you know, like I, I value, like I, I rabbi, I am the rabbi on the way to wedding and I am impatient because it's important for me to get there on time. And I'm a little bit frustrated and I'm a little bit worried that whether they're inviting too many people. And so, and so I am a little impatient, you know, like, I, okay, you know, I'd, I'd still like to speak respectfully, um, but I am, yes, I am rabbi Bookdahl and I'm a little bit impatient right now.
You know, like, like maybe, maybe that's. <laughs> I basically tried to say that as I apologize. And <laughs> but I, but nice I'm, but I'm, I'm saying um, that maybe that was that was the right thing, not just a kind of whitewashing of the situation, but but genuine. <laughs> like, in other words, like you're a real yes. person as opposed to as right. opposed to someone who is untouchable. Well, I mean, I think that's right, and I think that uh, I I love that you were actually able to flip my story into having done a favor to someone else. I think that uh, that's even you know more than I was willing to go. But I do think that maybe our insides matching our outsides um, is is truly about actually allowing ourselves to be fully human in front of others, um, mm-hmm. and that that is the gift that we can give to others in our in our best selves, in our aspiration, in like the beautiful things that people do for each other. And also in this, in those moments where our anxiety or our fear can sometimes take over and, and we have to do better and we can show that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives, I think other people permission, yes. um, to know that we can, you know, be flawed and still be part of the larger human enterprise with others. If we take the lead of the Talmudic passage that you referred us to, it, that might be our entry ticket. Right. In other words, our entry ticket to the Beit Midrash, our entry ticket into um, this creative endeavor and this community um, is a, yeah, actually, like my inside is not exactly as I'm presenting myself. And I kind of do sometimes pull a little bit, uh, put a little bit of a filter on there. And I'm not exactly happy about it. And I'll try to do it a little bit less. But, you know, that's, uh, but, but I, 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 fall here and I fall there sometimes. And this is also one of my failings. <laughs> Rabbi Angela Bukdal, thank you very, very much for being with us on Padrash. It was a real pleasure having you. Beautiful. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Dov Abramson, guest of our hypertext segment, We'll break briefly in order to meet Avital Blonder, director of Jindas, an NGO that works on urban renewal aimed at advancing social mobility, and a Kolot alumna. We chatted so that I could learn about her and how learning at Kolot has impacted her. I'm Avital. I was born and raised in Jerusalem. I'm 37 years old, married to Yael. We currently live in Yafo and we have two amazing kids. Can you share with us a moment that stayed with you or impacted you and continues to influence what you're doing? Using the Jewish values as part of not only the why, but also the how, in terms of how to engage people and how to open things that in some ways might be completely closed um, or blocked in many ways, became a door to opening conversation that could not have happened otherwise. When I brought my Jewish identity into the field, it became a way to open discussions that could not have been opened in a different way. So potentially we're talking about housing or social mobility, but bringing our personal identity to the field opened a whole new era in, in terms of our engaging opportunities to people and partners. Could you give one small example of how you're bringing your identity to the table plays out? When some of our relationship was just in the initial phase of it, it could be with the Lod municipality leadership that come from right-wing orthodox people that come from a different political views of mine. And for many years, I was the left-wing person that they might be loving personally, but could not agree on basically anything. 
And when I brought my Jewish identity to the table, it became a bridge in many ways to understanding that we come from very different perspectives and sometimes very different motivations. But at the end of the day, the fact that I have specifically at my house some mecham for Shabbat and and a plata, and it, it became a bridge to creating conversations that could have not happened because they realized that although I look very different to them, we're actually very similar in many ways. So bringing to the table the values that makes us who we are opened a whole different opportunity of engagement to the same activities that otherwise would be completely conflictual. In many ways. Beautiful. Avital Blonda, thank you very, very much. Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.net. And now, back to our episode. like to welcome to Padrash, Dov Abramson. Dov is an artist and graphic designer who lives in Jerusalem and a friend, which makes this an exceptional interview because uh, usually I make sure that I'm talking to people who are from North America. But for reasons that I hope will become clear, it was obvious to me that he was the perfect guest to have here. Uh, Dov was born in New York, uh, which makes him a big Yankees fan. Uh, <laughs> and at age seven, uh, he made what he calls involuntary aliyah when his parents brought him along. Uh, eventually, uh, studied visual communications at the Bezalel Academy in Jerusalem and opened up with time a studio that has become uh, one of the most interesting and innovative uh, graphic design studios and visual communication studios, certainly in Jerusalem and probably in Israel. And it is a pleasure, Dov, to welcome you to Padrash. Thanks for being here. The world has become such that we spend a tremendous amount of our time and energies curating our image. In in our conversation, when I asked you to do it, and I and I mentioned the word branding, and you said I, I hate that term, and I said yes, that's exactly why I want to have you on the on the show. You bring a tremendous sense of vision and content to the work that you do, uh, and so that's really kind of uh, the avenue that I'm hoping that we can explore. So I want to start by saying that obviously in your professional life. You, I mean, you studied visual communication, but at a certain level, you kind of wear two hats. You are, there is the art uh, and the creativity that you do that is purely yours, where you answer to no one, I guess, other than yourself, and you're giving some kind of expression, outward expression, visual expression, artistic expression to things that are bubbling up inside you. Uh, and then there's also the world of design. Um, where you're giving expression to other people's uh, visions or ideas. So I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that for us. What's that? What's the difference for you between those two hats, between those two modes? Most of the time, I'm a designer for hire. I would say about 90% of the time in my studio, I am giving visuals or the visual aspect for institutions, for organizations, for programs, and a small part of the time, I decide that it's time to do something that I want to say in the world. Mm -hmm. The reason I went into design is because I found out at a very early age that while 
creating uh, visuals and painting and drawing is wonderful, uh, there's something about graphic design or visual communication where you can actually say something through mm-hmm. those visuals. Or mm-hmm. you, can have, you can take a stance on a social issue or on anything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I try to do when I'm communicating for other people is to find the essence of what they're trying to say and give it that visual, the, mo- the tr- most truthful visual um, manifestation that I can. Hmm. Uh, that, that, that's, that, that's what I'm doing most of the time. I'm th- people are giving me a brief, mm-hmm. and I don't have to really put myself into it, myself as Dove, but I click into my design sensibilities mm-hmm. and say, okay, I understand what, you're tra- what this person, this client is trying to do in the world, let me show you how it can be done in the most fresh and creative way possible. You said that you, your job as a graphic designer is to kind of hear from the person or the organization, get a sense of their vision so that you then can give that expression in the logo or the branding or the design that you're doing. So how do you do that? Okay, so I, I, I love information. Um, I'm a big information buff. Uh, even, before inform- even before information became extremely, extremely accessible, I was someone that loved gathering information about basically about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sort of dirty secret that we have in our studio is that when it comes to branding or to designing a logo, as, as, you, as you mentioned, my uh, relationship with the word branding or the idea of branding is very, very unorthodox. <laughs> um, I actually don't want that much information. Um, I, I look up the organization, I read about it, mm-hmm. but what I don't do, and most of my colleagues do, is a very long discovery process mm-hmm. where everybody in the organization is asked certain questions. I've heard that it gets to questions, if your brand had a smell, what would it smell like? Mm. And that to me is already taking it to realms that go f- too far from the from the truth of what these organizations are. If this is an educational organization that works with, um, I don't know, disadvantaged youth, mm-hmm. I don't think that the smell of the brand is very important to get to the logo. But what we do is we try to, and this we do, we do take very seriously, is to try to find that essence, is to say, okay, this is what this organization is trying to put out there. What can it look like? To imagine what it can look like, because we really just try to bring in something fresh and say, okay, let's boil it down to what you do. And take it from there and try to develop that into a, what we call a visual language. Mm-hmm. And that's why we use a lot of illustration. Mm. Um, we use illustration as a, that's one of our big, our, our great tools. We, do, we use a lot of our brands and the branding projects that we've done mm-hmm. are done not through, fo- not through photography, mm-hmm. not through photo images, mm-hmm. but through illustration. Because then we give the illustrators in our studio the freedom to express the same core ideas that we're branding into something that they wouldn't that the client would have never have imagined and probably their clients the clients clients the people that are consuming the brand mm-hmm. excuse my mm-hmm. excuse mm-hmm. my uh, capitalist uh, jargon here um something that they would have never imagined that this is what they could look like hmm. that's how i approach so it. so so allowing it to be illustrated kind of uh frees it up yes. uh, unmoors it and allows and allows the translation to be a much more um, free-flowing translation. Yes, and and further from the concrete imagery that you would expect. When the first illustrator came in uh, to my studio, he said that he was looking for work, and I said, illustration? We're a graphic design studio. I have nothing to do with an illustrator full-time. Maybe once in a while we're doing something for kids so you can illustrate. But Elad, who is an extremely talented uh, illustrator, 
sort of talked me into it. And he said, well, I heard that you have this project coming up. Maybe you could use illustration. I said, you know what? I can promise you work for three months. That was nine years ago. And Elad hasn't had taken a breath since he, <laughs> since he walked into the studio. So that's an attribute to his talent and his great interpretation of these brands and organizations into mm. something that can be done in a way that I would have never thought of. Mm. My, my tools, even as a graphic designer, were very limited compared mm. to the to be able to paint and and illustrate mm. and illustrate in, in the in the real essence of the word illustrate to illuminate to mm. to to pour light onto something mm. in a whole new way mm. how do you know i mean other than the client saying thank you um mm. but for yourself right um how do you know when you've succeeded um and how do you know when you haven't in other words and, and it would interest me situations in which the client is happy and you're not or something like that where where you feel like there was some essence that i wasn't quite able to crack or that there's a gap that between the visual and and what i was and, and what i was hearing initially or maybe maybe you want to tell a different story we just did uh, a um educational technological center in jerusalem for youth mm-hmm. um a beautiful new building uh, in a neighborhood that is not known for being upscale. Mm-hmm. Um, and the architect did a great job, and then they brought us in to do the graphic design, to do the branding, basically, mm-hmm. for that building. And again, we turned, actually, to Elad specifically, uh, who, instead of using the regular imagery that we see for tech, uh, it was all illustrated. It was about making. You know, that's the, that's one of the big words today in, in, in edutech and educational technology. Um, and we just sort of reimagined what can happen in that building. Hmm. And we didn't ask tons of questions and what mm-hmm. exactly is good. We took it to the inspirational level. Mm. Getting back to your kind of recoil from the term branding and, and, and you're saying, I'm sorry to use the word, uh, you know, right. consumer or whatever. Is there a time, are there times when you feel like you're spending your time um, helping people curate an image that's coming at the expense of content you know that maybe is kind of if, if i go back to that initial comment that you talked about graphic design being something that, that helps collapse uh or, or condense the communication process such that it can be socially effective or there are times when you feel like no all i'm doing is staying in the image well if that's the core of our conversation here um about what is what is true so you know so to speak mm-hmm. and what's curated and mm-hmm. i think as everybody knows, we're all curating our image all the time, even before social media. Right. We we were you know just like the podcast said, we're not externally. We're never exactly the same people that we are internally. Right. People are trying to portray what they want people to see. Mm. I am fortunate to work with people and organizations that what they do and what they want to try people to see is truthful enough from where I'm standing, is sincere enough. Mm. I use the word sincerity a lot in my Mm. work. If I find that the person asking me for his image is sincere about what he or she is trying to do, then I'm cool with that. Mm. I don't really, I don't try to think, I don't overthink it. Mm. Um, I say, I I believe this person. Mm. He or she is sincere. They want to do something good, like this this, uh, center. Um, and the word branding has something almost violent about it. You know, mm. the word branding comes from branding. I'm from Texas, so right? I know that. We brand, we brand <laughs> right. cattle. So that's, that's, the, we, that's, that's real, what we that's do. That's real branding. Yeah, right? that's you the see? real thing. That's the real branding. So, <laughs> and I, I, I really, I'm not comfortable with the fact that that word has become a word that's supposed to be something artistic. Mm. Um, because it's, it's a very, very violent uh, mm. action. And mm. it means 
that we're almost um, coercing this image on the actual thing. Wow, I don't want to see what I do as that. I don't mm. want to see like myself taking that hot rod mm. or whatever and searing something into somebody's. Mm. I think when it goes, and that's why our studio remains very uh, cozy and very um, intimate and maybe very Jerusalem-ish mm-hmm. and not, mm-hmm. we're not a big Tel Aviv company, some of which are do amazing work. Some are colleagues of mine. I don't think I would be able... And I don't mean this like to be on my moral high horse. I just don't think I know how to do that. I just mm. I don't think I know how to make that spin when it becomes a spin and when it becomes a marketing issue. Mm. I, I just don't know how to do that. That's not me. I, I really feel that there is t- w- there is room in the world to do something a softer kind of branding mm. that that and that's why I, I I use what we use in the studio is developing visual languages. That's what we love to do. Mm. We say this is an organization that speaks a certain language, mm-hmm. uses certain words, uses certain syntax. Mm-hmm. We want to take those words, that syntax, and change it into form. Take it from letters and words into form, into mm. into color, into fonts, into layout into web, into user experience. Hmm. That's what we, that's how I look at what I do. Hmm. Uh, and that's why I don't really, I don't really meet that dilemma, right? I don't, I don't, conf- that, that dilemma that you, Leon, uh, articulated very nicely doesn't really confront me in the daily basis hmm. because we render services to everybody from very, very far uh, left, uh, liberal Jewish uh, organizations to pretty far um, conservative, mm-hmm. small C, mm-hmm. uh, Jewish organizations. Mm-hmm. And we try to be very um, truthful to what their message is. Mm. And as long as it's not something that doesn't cross certain lines of violence or of, um, uh, of course, of hate or, or hate speech, then we'll do it. Then we'll give them hmm. the image that they're looking for. Would it be fair to say that actually what you're trying to do is kind of, in a certain sense, a reverse branding, where 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 it's not that you're searing the skin of the organization, but the organization, you, you the organization's skin is kind of searing outside so that it can now be seen. I say to our clients, we want your language to be to breathe. We want mm. your language to leave room. We want your language to leave room for expansion. You're not going to be the same organization you are now in two years. So we want to give you the foundations. Again, it's it's a language. It's syntax. It's 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 words. It's how these things come together. And so when you said, yeah, that the that the skin is breathing out is out. That's what I'm thinking about. Is mm. that is that space that allows us to have their visual language breathe. Mm. Dov Arbomson, thank you very, very much for being here. Thank you, Leanne. It was a pleasure. Thanks. There it is, seared in our minds, the delicious image, not of a holy Rabbi Angela Bukdal, who speaks so inspiringly, who sings so powerfully, who in a Rosh Hashanah service utters deep truths with insight and with deafness helping us find meaning and a source of growth in the tradition. But rather, Rabbi Angela Bukdal leaning on her horn as two trucks block her way out of the parking lot. She could hire the master of visual communication, Dov Abramson, to brand or rebrand her image so that she could put on a soft filter, blur those rough edges, and make the rest of us think that her insides and her outsides are perfectly aligned. But what a disservice that would be. I'm imagining the guy with the clipboard who might need to know, and not just know, but to actually see those places where the angelic Angela Bookdahl loses her cool just a bit. I mean, we know that those other parts of her, and of us, exist 
the less photogenic ones, the ones we'd rather not put on display. So why keep them hidden? What's at stake in curating our image? Even that word, curated, sounds so curated. I want to suggest that it's all about being in control. So often at critical moments, we're not so great at controlling ourselves. So we try to compensate and control what images of ourselves we let out. Alan Funt understood that when the red light goes on, we're stylized, branded, if you will, and boring. Life is messy. We make mistakes. We lose our temper. We sometimes have pimples. And when we pretend otherwise, we pay a terrible cost ourselves, and we create stale communities, the kind with beautiful lawns and lots of really miserable people inside their houses. Perhaps we can accept Ruban Gamaliel's challenge of tocho kevro, of aligning our insides with our outsides, but with a qualification. I'll try to be authentic to myself and true in how I present myself, but I also don't want to be too aware of who I am, too reductive of who I can be. I want to be in the Beit Midrash of life where I can have an open-ended argument, not just with you in terms of where the argument might go, but with myself in terms of where I might go. Where instead of being branded outside in, I can convey who I am by breathing inside out. I can, like Dov Abramson, when he uses the illustrations of Alad rather than a photograph, know the essence of who I am and what I'm trying to convey, but maintain a playfulness, an ability to experiment and evolve. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Angela Buchtal and Dov Abramson, to our producer Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman for his masterful sound editing, to my chevruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, and for putting all of us in touch with our contrarian teenage selves, and to Michael Goel Samer for the original music. Please visit our website at www.podrash.org, where you'll find links to the original episode of Radio Lab's Smile My Ass and to Joel's and my extended Chavruta, along with the texts that we referenced. Please find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps, or so they say. Drop me a line, tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with Episode 2, Seeing with our eyes closed. Thanks for joining us.